0: Hi, my name is Jordan Vote roberts I'm the director of Skull Island. Right now you're looking at the title sequence, which was originally intended to be a series of three sequences or shots that were sort of throwbacks to 70s, kind of like vector-based and illustrated uh, company logos. And we just couldn't get them right without them feeling cheesy, and as it turns out, uh, studios are very, very productive of their logos. So we sort of compromised on um, this here that sort of puts us all in the world of the dogfight. Um, this shot coming up right here with the sun was always sort of intended to be just to start the movie off with the idea of myth, sort of Icarus falling from the sun. Uh, and this actually <laughs> originally was supposed to kind of start on the trees, um, much like Apocalypse Now's first shot, and then slowly uh, pan off of them onto, um, onto this horrific crash. Um, I love this sequence. It's one of my favorite things in the movie, <clears throat> uh, just because I think... Uh, Anyone who's seen the movie knows that it's very, very strange and a very, very weird movie and unexpected. I think if you're really paying attention in this sequence, uh, you realize how kind of like off kilter and left of center and kind of like manga stylized a lot of this stuff is. But upon first watching, like, I think it's pretty easy to actually miss that. Um, These were some of my favorite days shooting um, just because it really was like these two actors and myself on this crazy beach. Um, But I just love this weird sort of like spaghetti Western standoff vibe and it, like the m- moment like this to me is actually super funny and absurd. It just kind of has like that weird uh, South Korean, like the good, the bad and the weird twist to things. And I just love the idea of this like crazy David Lean movie, these big vistas. Um, you know, so this scene to me has always just been this idea of um, two countries and two people trying to kill each other and then suddenly being uh, confronted with something much greater than themselves. Um, this was several, several days to shoot, and they kept trying to give this stuff to second unit um, because, it, you know, in theory, it's not these sort of principal actors. And this was just such a very, very important scene to me. Um, and so we kept making time in the schedule, and it probably took, you know, six days or something to shoot. Um, I love this shot. I can't believe it's in the movie. I can't believe we got away with <laughs> blood and this sword going through his hand. Um, Miyavi and Will here, these two actors, are just so incredible and so committed, um, it would have been so easy for them to, uh, become very, very upset with me, the amount of physical things they do with no dialogue, but that's why they're there, is because they had to sell the awe of this as they are confronted with something bigger. Uh, this scene right here is very much inspired by some of the imagery of, um, Shadow of the Colossus and, uh, just the scale and scope of, uh, the creatures in that game. Um, And also, you know, this shot right here as we go into Marlowe's eye, obviously sort of reflects the end where we go into Kong's eye and go back to Marlowe's world. Um, But I really, really love that sequence. If we can put this tremendous machine of ours, which has made this victory possible, to work for peace, we can look forward to the greatest age in the history of mankind. Speed of progress in the satellite project cannot be taken as an index of our progress in ballistic missile work. I feel we're on the brink of an area of expansion of knowledge about ourselves and our surroundings. This right here, this title sequence, is also um, something I'm really proud of, just because uh, being able to work with Kyle Cooper, um, who is just an absolute genius. Uh, You know, he did the title sequence two seven, which sort of reinvigorated title sequences, and, you know, he's worked with uh, Hideo Kojima on several of the Metal Gear title sequences, and he just has this incredible library of stock footage, and he just, he's one of those people. Um, he's like the Terrence Malick of, of stock footage. He's just able to make these connections and these visuals that you just wouldn't understand. And I love the idea of, like, telling the story um, of war and telling the story of sort of what happened between where we just left ourselves in World War II and where we're about to pick up in 1973. Uh, there were several versions of this title sequence that were way intense, just bloody. And like, it just made you feel terrible. So it was really tricky to find the right balance of, uh, of being accurate to the period, but then uh, not bumming the audience out. So here we sort of come from stock footage into, into the real world, um, And land on the lovely guy, John Goodman, and everyone sort of points out this line right here, there'll never be more screwed up time in Washington, uh, being like, oh my God, uh, how did you know things are going to be so crazy? And, you know, we shot this well before things got crazy in the world, but uh, I was just always obsessed with sort of the weird black mirror that was the 70s uh, and the way that it related to right now. It was just, you know, you look at everything going on between... Racial riots and sexual revolutions and political scandals and distrust of the government. And when I was sort of pitching this idea of the 70s, I was so obsessed with the fact that it seemed to reflect everything going on in the world right now. Um, And we sort of pressed the pause button on all all these issues and (laughs) no one seemed to to care. Um, It kind of blew my mind. Uh, Corey Hawkins and John Goodman are the best. Shooting in sets like this where you just have these bright orange walls is... uh, such a joy, such a weird thing to like step out of your car in the morning, in your modern life, and then suddenly be in this set. This is Alan Rachel. She's uh, an improviser, comedian, actress I work with, and then the great uh, Richard Jenkins. And, uh, you know, this is another scene that like, I think is much funnier than you sort of understand at first, first go. It's one of those things where, um, much like my last movie, Kings of Summer, I think this movie starts and ends a very different film. And there are a lot of people who come into this movie and are unsure of whether they're allowed to laugh. You know, whether whether it can be funny. Um, and I love stuff like that. Um, I love movies that sort of change and morph. And I think this movie absolutely becomes a different thing. But, but it is funny when you first show it to people because they certainly are, like, uh, not sure if the movie is trying to be funny or trying to be weird or not. Uh, Jenkins is the man... You know he uh, he's got such an amazing career. He's you know he's another guy like John Goodman or John C. Riley who's just such an incredible dramatic actor, and yet somehow so intrinsically understands comedy. Um, this was actually at one point a an image of Godzilla, um, and I fought really hard against that because I really felt like the movie needed to be about King Kong at the beginning and and to sort of have an image of Godzilla up front, suddenly made it, it instantly turned into a weird sequel, and I just always felt like there were going to be people going to see this movie who didn't know anything about Godzilla, and luckily, you know, the studio is very smart and uh, understood that, and so that was a very last minute change. Um, So I'm very glad about that. Corey Hawkins is also the man. You know, he's he's younger, but uh, he's one of those guys where you give direction to, and then you walk back to him right afterwards, and you're like, you know what? Do it the way you're doing it. <laughs> that was better. He's just so good like that. Um, this scene was, uh, you know, they're talking about the Landsat satellite right now, and I was just so obsessed with this idea of um, putting satellites into the sky and mapping the Earth and looking down at the world for the first time, and And sort of uncovering places and things and and seeing the world in a way we hadn't seen before. And it seemed like such a credible way into this world in the 70s. And it also just tied so directly into this idea that I was obsessed with, which is the loss of myth, which I'll probably talk about a lot over the course of this this commentary. But, you know, as you're mapping the world and uncovering these things, you're slowly sort of eradicating myth in a weird way. So um, the satellite program is a real thing and super fascinating. But... uh, I just loved the idea of um, using that as an access point for how to credibly say they found this island. Uh, this stuff was shot in Hawaii, not Vietnam, although ironically you know, much of the movie was shot in Vietnam. But doing big exteriors like this was uh, would have obviously presented a big challenge. Uh, this was actually the first shot of the whole film right here. Um, this big ass techno crane shot. Um, I love the Peanuts and Snoopy, <laughs> that that the record player is really mine. Uh, my weird childhood influences. Um, these guys, Shea Wiggum, Jason Mitchell, Eugene Cordero, Thomas Mann, they are a dream team of now friends and family, and you couldn't ask for a better group of people. Uh, Shay's reading a book called Captain's Courageous right now, which uh, oddly reflects his uh, his fate at the end of the film um and uh i just can't say enough good things about those guys they are um really a wrecking crew and they all bring such different things to it and that was also some of the first stuff that we shot and there's there's a version of that scene that's so weird and so strange where they're talking about like solid gold astronaut helmets that i think is so bizarre and funny um but i just love this idea of taking these like you know vietnam era soldiers and thrusting them in a like a Ray Harryhausen monster movie. Um, Toby Kebbell, also the man. You know, he is such a great actor. He also provides some facial capture of Kong throughout the film. Um, And he just really, really is one of those guys who I just love watching. Uh, Not just his mocap, but him as an actor. Um, This shot coming up where we pull back from... um, Packard's desk is one of those shots that like we scrambled to get in in an hour. I love sort of dynamic lighting changes and stuff. There's a big one in Kings of Summer and I thought for sure this was going to get cut. It was just one of those things where you know, a lot of times in these big blockbusters like anything that calls attention to itself like that just goes the way the Dodo and they were uh they just surprisingly were very cool about that stuff. Uh which is a real testament to them. Uh, this scene was picked up later, um, I always loved the idea of just sort of getting us out, getting us in the rain, initially he had a phone call but the uh, the information that he got was, was a little different so this got picked up um, in LA later, um, which was another fun day of just being in the rain all day, this is so dumb, that reflection in the phone booth is, uh, th- there's a scene in the conversation where Gene Hackman gets out of the bus and into this phone booth and I uh, just there's something about the aesthetic of the reflection which actually makes no sense that I loved in that movie um, so this is Hawaii all the signs in the background are added by the wizards at Industrial Light and Magic um, and this was the last day of our shoot in Hawaii and right there in the background uh, that guy in the back, uh, there's three people right there that is Nick Robinson, Aaron Moriarty and Moises Arias who play... Uh, Joe, Biagio, and Kelly from King of Summer. And actually right up here, you will see them again as the camera fully spins around. Um, I just, for some reason, loved the idea of hiding those three in the background of this. Um, maybe that'll be my thing as I make more movies. is just putting those, those guys in right there, those three, and then they're gone. Um, but it was really fun just being able to fly them out and... Those kids are like my little brothers and sisters as well. And so uh, just having them out for a day was pretty surreal. But that was the last day on set. Now there's a man worth talking to. We were really trying to figure out how to help justify uh, later in the film when Conrad uses the, the sword and what I sort of deem the gas mask samurai scene. Uh, we, we had that scene and, uh, Hiddleston originally had a slightly different introduction and, um, we wanted to introduce him in a more dynamic way and then also (laughs) help set up the gas mask. Um, and that scene was originally sort of edited in a slightly more, um, like South Korean stylized, like manga way. And, uh, I think people were afraid of kind of how willing it was to be absurd, um, and so it got sped up a little bit. But uh, I still think it's—I love the idea that pool keep going in his mouth. But right now, it's such a blink and you'll miss it moment. Okay, there is no map, only satellite images. So we need someone like you, with your skill, your unique expertise in uncharted jungle terrain, to lead us on our ground expedition. Uh, this seems funny because we need someone John Goodman was shot by himself Tom Hiddleston and Corey were shot together Um, and then there were scenes where John and uh, Corey are composited together this was just a weird like crazy scheduling snafu Um, so that was a really crazy scene to shoot Um, but I I love I think Goodman's so exquisite at the end of that just man go to war in search of something if you found it you'd be home he's so good there uh, the lovely Brie Larson. Um, you know, this is Thomas Middleditch on the other line, on the end of the phone, uh, from Silicon Valley. Uh, one of my best friends uh, from our days in Chicago. Um, it was fun just being able to call him up and say, hey, can you do this really thankless part on the other end of this phone? And after he came in and recorded it, he sent me a text message being like, hey, dude, I totally get it if you want to recast me, like... Yeah, I I just wasn't good. I wasn't good. And I was like, <laughs> relax, buddy. Like, chill, chill out. Uh, Bree's amazing, though. And um, uh, very fortunate to be able to have someone as talented as her in this. Um, this was a crazy day, just a night shoot in Hawaii. That was originally one sort of unbroken shot that took you from... Before you start with Conrad to right here, Uh, if you look in the right there, the Athena letters on that boat, uh, that's my dumb, unnecessary nod to Alien, just because the A's are sort of in the same font as the title font from Alien. (laughs) There's so many weird, dorky references in this that I guess slowly I'll call out. There's some that I'm definitely going to leave for the viewer to find um a because i might get in trouble for them and b because uh you gotta leave something to the imagination (laughs) night shoots are really crazy always you sort of fall in this like weird black hole of time and space and forget the rest of the world exists um this right here though is mark evan jackson he was in my last film and he is an incredible human being and someone that uh I've just sort of considered a secret weapon for a while. He's one of those guys. And I'm like, how are you not a movie star? Um, everyone should know who you are. He's so talented and so funny. And uh, I just love working with him. Um, yeah, you know, that's that. I think I'm done with this commentary now, right? You guys don't understand how difficult it is to watch this film. For me, I've seen this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And watching it with an audience is one thing because it's this incredible moment where it goes from being um, my movie to being their movie. And that's like the greatest joy for me as a director you can have is when it ceases being your thing and is now other people's thing. But now I'm just in a dark room by myself. Um, the incredible John Ortiz, killing it, always. Such an amazing, amazing uh, actor, person. Um I love analog stuff. You know, you see that old phone in, in, Bree's, um, in Bree's photo lab, and we've got the projector here, and then you've got all the, the computery gack and the, the DC office at the beginning. I just love old analog stuff. In the background here, an old Chuck Jones cartoon is playing behind Tom Hiddleston. It's called Now Hear This. It's one of those things where before the Internet, when you could just have anything on demand, when you were watching Looney Tunes, that cartoon would occasionally come on. Chuck Jones was nominated for an Oscar for it, and it was one of those weird things where as a kid, like, you, you can't start it when you want it to start, so you'd just turn on the TV and you'd be like halfway through, so it was so rare to see the whole thing. Uh, if you guys haven't seen it, please go and watch it. It's such a weird, psychedelic, incredible piece of, uh, of animation. Um, and I've just always been obsessed with it. And that's one of the joys of, like, making a studio movie where it's like, oh, Warner Brothers, you own all the the Tune stuff. Let me put this on the TV in the background. Uh, Mark's joke there, you guys are not scientists. That's improvised. That's just sort of him as a snarky, amazing actor. Uh, and that's the wonderful stuff that he brings to roles like this. Uh, this is a weird scene because it's one of the only scenes where... Basically, everybody is in that scene except John C. Riley. So there's not one single scene in this film where everyone's together because by the time they get to John C. Riley, several people have died. So that was actually kind of an interesting day on set because a lot of people um, were around each other who were never actually around each other on set. You know, the rest of the movie, Toby's basically by himself and the whole group's essentially split off except for, you know, one scene where they sort of all link up and then a lot of other people die. Um, the shot coming up here is <laughs> sort of my weird, the way these boxes are stacked and the the, the camera is sort of my weird homage to the, the camera and, and the first sort of room that you playing in Metal Gear Solid for the PlayStation. Um, I was actually intending like a much more intense camera movement at one point that went from sort of ground level that boomed up over it and I was like, well, this is a cool homage but completely unnecessary for the scene, so... Uh, That got dropped pretty quick. Um, It's really funny, you know, right up here we get into these short-sighted singles where Tom's on the left and Bree's on the right and uh, it sort of goes against conventional wisdom and uh, it's one of those things where some people are just like, you can't do it that way. I don't understand. People are going to get confused and it's like, no, no no one's going to get confused. Uh, This is some of my favorite stuff in the film. Anyone who knows me knows that like any note that I'm gonna get for the rest of my my life is like it's too montagey. There's too much montage and uh, like all this footage for the most part is me with the camera strapped to my chest Just sort of with the guys and like you know finding these moments Like I love just strapping on a camera and like shooting this kind of like b-roll stuff um And so all this stuff right here, just like to me, it's just a reminder of like, oh right, like we're in the '70s and this is the vibe. But like, you know, all all this footage, like A, I just I love them as frames. But B, like it's just some of my favorite stuff to shoot. Like that was really early on, and and that's the stuff that makes me most feel like you're shooting in indie or you're just like off by yourself shooting this thing. And um, I love that stuff. Uh, That shot right there. Is like a crazy move where we're actually in a camera or in a helicopter, and uh, the stuff these guys do in helicopters is, How far away is insane. Fifty miles, maybe more. Take us closer. You want to launch? You do it from here. You know, but these guys are like such pros, where they can fly ten inches from something or whatever. Like, they really are the best pilots in the world. Um, I think that was Fred North flying, flying the airplane that day. And, uh, I went up in the helicopter with him, and it really is these like life moments where you've got this this monitor in the back, and someone's flying, someone's controlling the camera and the zoom, and like and then you're telling them sort of like how to change the way they're flying, and you're up there, and you're like, this is my job right now. You know, it's one of those moments where like the the absurdity that you go through as a director and the emotional sort of like ups and downs of it like completely makes sense because you're like, I can't believe I get to just like fly a helicopter around like it like it's a toy. Um, this shot right here, that match cut to, to of John to John, that that shot of him and boarding that helicopter is uh, such a small thing, but it's one of my favorite things in the film. Just because I think it speaks volumes about not just John Ortiz just as an actor and what he can do with a small look, but I think that like in a lot of ways he is maybe the most normal proxy of like um, him and Thomas Mann are probably like the closest things to like a regular person uh dropped into this situation uh, everyone else is uh you know in some crazy uh crazy movie um this whole thing with the bed uh that's all improvised uh i love improv i love just finding things and uh jason mitchell and shea wiggum as, as a duo is like a dream they're such incredibly different people um and it's such a good combination uh, I would love to see someone else put the the two of them in a movie as a duo. It's a uh, it's a great pair, and I would love to work with them again. Um, this stuff's kind of maddening to shoot, just like all the steady cam shot of people like boarding helicopters and taking off and things like that. Um, but uh, I love it. It's funny. I had uh, a dinner <laughs> with Park Chan-wook, uh, who directed Old Boy. And one of the oddest questions he asked me was like, the the guys with the batons, these guys right here in the red, how are they so good? They're so believable. I was like, that's the question you want to ask me about this movie? Um, (laughs) It was so weird and funny. um, But for some reason, he was just like very captivated by how um, believable they were. Uh it's one of the many things we talked about, but uh back there Sam says hold on your butts, which I was obviously sort of a reference to Jurassic Park and it's one of those things where um I had I think Derek Connolly put it in the script, um and I thought there was no way in hell that uh Sam was gonna say that. And it was just one of those things where we were on set that day, he didn't say anything, I didn't say anything, and he just kept saying it. And it uh, makes me really sad because at one point I really wanted John Goodman to say, like, you're out of your element or market zero or (laughs) something insane from um, Big Lebowski. And it just never made its way in. But uh, it's funny, as we started showing the movie to people, like that hold on to your butts really, um, really resonated with people somehow. Um, This is sort of the the big Mad Max uh, entering the storm shot. Um, all this stuff in the helicopters is like a combination of being on a buck and being in real helicopters and all sorts of stuff and all, anything where you're like on a stage, just in like a small little cramped helicopter, which is some of the f- basically like the first week of the film was maddening to shoot. Um, all this storm stuff was some of the last delivered footage, so for the longest time it was uh, such a unknown quantity. All these big exteriors here. You know, the harder stuff in the movie is like creature work, so they put this stuff off for a long time. So it was one of these sequences that up until the very end was like storyboards. So for the longest time, I was just completely uncertain how sort of tense and, and how evocative or uh, affecting it was. And it was such a joy to be able to actually take it to a theater and, uh, and see that people like, were really affected by it. Um, and then this idea of like sort of all of these flares and this like pink-purple lightning um, definitely like threw people the first time they saw it, they were like, uh, pink lightning? And it's like, and there are all these reference photos you can really get of of storms with this like red, purpley, pink lightning and I thought it was so great. Um, and then we have Nixon. Um, the idea of actually using Nixon to sort of come out of the, the storm, you know, we shot a bunch of footage with that bobblehead. But I was intending it more for crash footage later, and you know, it sort of became this conversation with uh, our editor, one of our editors, Rick Pearson, um, who was like, oh, I think that'd be a really cool way to exit that storm. And uh, that's just a real testament to him as sort of a a creative dude. This is all Ha Long Bay in Vietnam. Um, That mountain right there is a very intentional homage to the PlayStation game Journey, um, which is one of my favorite video games of all time. Um, the team of people who put that together are incredible. This is all ha long Bay and uh it was such a joy to be able to go to vietnam it 's one of my favorite places on the planet yet or so far and I just think these landscapes these colors uh, i just don 't think people know how gorgeous that country is and I, I really hope that this movie um, when it comes out has some some element of sort of almost like Lord of the Rings when people saw middle earth and tied it to new zealand and they were just blown away this shot right here these birds um was shot by ross Rigi, um my director of photography that i worked with for a long long time and um we were shooting in this location that those birds would just fly up every day in the swamp and so i was just like ross go get those birds go find them go find them and then we were there for like a week and finally he got uh the birds and i just i think it's such a beautiful shot um, so now we're in our sort of like very intentional apocalypse now, Flood of the Valkyries moment. Uh, I just, I, you know, for me, the, one of the first things with this movie was like choppers and napalm and, and the apocalypse now of it all mixed with King Kong. And, you know, <laughs> we even skipped over like the butterfly or like dragonfly shot that uh, we had earlier, which was a big sort of talking point in a lot of the trailers. And it's funny because that shot, like we'd make like a $50,000 model, you know, like to, to do that shot was not cheap. It was one of those things where people were like, just cut the shot, just cut the shot. Like, when you're trying to save money, and, it, you know, to me, there was just, like, such a fun kind of Terrence Malick beauty to it, which I wanted to kind of, like, bring to this film, and, uh, and so it's just funny that that was a shot that was, like, always kind of on the chopping block, and and then, uh, you know, it's in, like, our very first teaser trailer. Um... This was a sequence that I just wanted to be, like, styled and fun and to see shit that you hadn't necessarily seen before, like, all that kind of very slow-mo phantom footage of the helicopters flying around, like, you know, to, to have, like, a beauty and a fun to this, but to have the, like, the darkness of these dumb humans dropping bombs just like we were at the time. Um, and getting shots like this were uh, a real ordeal. You know, some of this stuff, uh, a lot of this size shot, and then some of this stuff, especially of like some of the helicopters, like when they're flying around, you got to go and give to the, you know, some aerial guys where you're shooting other stuff. And so you just have to be like hyper detailed with storyboards. Um, uh, and, uh, and luckily they were able to match them really, really well. Um, so the tree spear. This, as one long, unbroken shot, was one of the very first things that we prevised. And this was one of the very last shots that we finaled. And there were so many times where people were like, you got to break it up. you got to break the shot up. You can't do it in one. And there were, even even in the previous stage, like, this is too expensive of a shot. These guys right here are Digi Doubles because we shot this with uh, with real stunt guys, and it just didn't have the energy that we needed. And um, this is a real, real testament to Scott Benza and Jeff White and the guys at Industrial Light and Magic who really pushed this shot together and and pulled it together. But I love the idea of this crazy unbroken shot. Um, as, as you sort of are in the sky, you see a tree spear, which it's like I've never seen a, a tree go through a helicopter like that. It was a piece, of, like a storyboard that I saw early on. and was like, oh, we have to do that. Um, and this is sort of my weird homage to the 33 film right here where he falls in his mouth because one of the things that I love about the 33 version, beyond Kong being a monster, is that Kong ate people in that film and like I didn't want to do a movie where he was like actively eating people here but I wanted a little bit of an homage to that I love all these sunset shots like these are this is legitimately the imagery that was sort of in my my mind is as, as I first kind of came across this idea and pitched legendary the 1970s and these are obviously like very sort of Spielbergian like look off into the distance to get reactions and how am I going to make a movie in the 70s and not have some like old school film footage um, and then this shot right here this is this is the shot. Like this is the shot that seared in my brain when the apocalypse now and in 70s of it all came up and just him silhouetted by that sun was one of the first pieces it was the first piece of concept art ever made for this film and we did so many takes of that shot to get it right uh and I'm just I'm really proud of this whole sort of section as a reveal even something like this as we Fly through multiple choppers, like it's in theory such like a video game cinematic um, but I don't think it calls attention to itself in that way um, I'm really proud of this section right here uh because of the rhythm that we play with the the alternate uh, beats as we sort of go where uh, we're, we're keen off of the gunfire as it builds and builds and builds until that and that's a real testament to. The editors and, and the the just the entire sort of mixing team and the the music guys. You know this whole sequence to me like it was gonna be such a signature sequence. So every time like whether it's a tree going through a helicopter or that helicopter just getting yanked back out of frame, it just felt like this is this is a, a series of events where every single thing has to be unique and interesting. It was just such a difficult and consuming sequence to make. Uh, not just in terms of geography, but just just everything, you know. Like how every beat has to somehow feel like it's adding something new and different. Whether he's stomping on something, whether he's grabbing something, and this is one of my favorite shots in the film, actually, because it turns into a very anime, like Evangelion, you know, long lens, like several layers of parallax as you're running by. A shot, um, and I always love this idea of him jumping over a helicopter. Um, it's just such an insane thing. Uh, there's just so many, you know, I, I hope people watch the sequence and and they they appreciate how insane it is. You know, for a long time, this was one of those things where you just watch in storyboard form. And so you're like, does this work? Is this compelling? This right here, the guy in the background actually yells, like, run to the side, you which is me throwing a little bit of a shade towards uh, movies that I love dearly, like things like Prometheus <laughs> and just movies in general where there's all these, you know, people running straight from something when they should be running to the side that's such a small moment there where his uh where the bobblehead uh is crashing down He's sort of completing nixon's arc in a weird way um but it's one of those sound design things where you do it where you're like all right we want to drop out all the sound all the sound except the bobblehead and everyone kind of looks at you like, "Oh, this might be crazy. Like, people, are people going to laugh at this?" And then uh, it's one of those moments where like it's actually one of my favorite sound design moments in the film, and the, the team that we had at Skywalker Sound is, is so lovely and amazing, and just taking risks like that is, is such a dream. Um, this is such a weird, oddly affecting thing. All this stuff about the, the mom. Um, this was all rift. Um, you know, this was a really difficult sequence. Not just to sort of make, but then to um, to have it feel like people are reacting appropriately. You know, there's all that radio chatter when they're first seeing Kong, and and the thing that I always keyed off of was I love an apocalypse. Now, when when Chef sees the tiger, uh, and he gets back on the boat, and he's like, what the, what the, you know, and he's just freaking out, and just finding that balance of people feel like they're acting uh, appropriately and freaking out um, as humans would and 70s soldiers would, but then also being able to be heightened like a film. It's such a weird combination of things uh, to kind of not break your film, but to have it feel reasonable. You know, like people don't react appropriately in a lot of monster films. And I'd like to think some of those small moments make it feel real and all that stuff with the moms is, is improvised and I actually find that like very compelling as they're crashing and then Mills gets cut off um this is some of my favorite stuff right here just the way they square off and you know him framed as those helicopters are smashing down and um yeah there's so much to talk about in that sequence oh my god I'm, I skipped shots like the the <laughs> explosions reflected in the sunglasses and things that uh I can't even talk about it. You don't have time. This is Vietnam. Uh, As you can see, very beautiful. This is Hawaii, though. Um, I love that idea of Kong walking away uh, earlier, just like almost the end of a Western, and that smoke sort of comes up and completely just obscures him. Like he's just, you know, at this point, like I do want him to be a monster and this, like, sort of mysterious uh, god. You know, so much of this movie to me is about Kong as a lonely god, uh, like a morose god, this like melancholy figure. Uh, Someone who is like the, has this thankless task, this lonely protector of the island. And um, I just love the idea of making him godlike as opposed to just like an ape. Um, This is also one of my favorite things right here at the end of this scene. Uh, It's so small and weird. But but him saying that right there, that's one of those moments to me that actually like takes you out of movie land of like okay, we're we're going. This is what's happening. Everyone get their gear together and move on. And that's like a real human response of what someone might do in a scene like that. um And that's you know I set that setup up and then me and Thomas Mann just riffed like ninety different options of of what that line was and. Um, that's one of those lines, like, I'll still just watch and chuckle to myself every time. Uh, Thomas Mann is just an immense talent. Uh, but it just makes it feel real to me. Just any time, like, people almost are, like, calling out the absurdity, not just of the situation, but of the movie itself, I just think that that somehow makes it, um, real in a weird way, or authentic. Something along those lines. Um, so... The Sky Devil symbol that you saw earlier uh, is a weird reference to uh, uh, some Greek gods and uh, the infinity symbol, um, but it's a weird combination of things. Uh, I'm actually very proud of it, and he's sort of like holding up the sun, too, in a very sort of Icarus way, which is uh, God thinking that it controls nature. ...down by a monkey the size of a building. Yeah. Uh. This is one of my favorite scenes in the film. It once again it's just a huge testament to to Shay and to um, to Jason. And I think it's one of the first moments in the film. This scene to me is like, this is how I want people reacting in, in a monster movie—like making light of it and 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 this absurdity. Like, there's there's a scene in Bong Joon Ho's The Host uh, where you think the daughters died and they're mourning it, and it's so sad, and then it becomes like slapsticky funny where they're falling all over themselves and a guy in a hazmat suit slips in the background and it's just real. Um, and it's absurd. That's what makes it great. Um, right here, he says, uh, Haja Seraf, and Galetta. Uh Those are the producers and the writer of Kings and Summer. Um, so my own little nod. Um, uh, one of those dog tags, I don't know if you actually see it in the sc- on the screen, but it says uh, Harambe. Um, I don't know if it actually is in focus, but uh, there's a lot of weird stuff in this movie. Once again, this is Vietnam. This is actually the location. When we first scouted, uh, we went to Vietnam for a couple days, and the rest of the crew went home. And I had a friend with me, and me and my production designer, my location manager, went to this part of uh, Vietnam. This is Toulon, which is near Phong Nha in the Quang Binh province. And this was the location that, that we sort of went to, and we kind of, or I at least, like, this is when I fell in love with it. This is when uh, I was like, we have to shoot in Vietnam. Just like the, the river and the, the the intensity of the greens and the mountains in the background, there was something about it that um, it just, yeah, you, I couldn't find it in Thailand. I couldn't find it anywhere else. And, and this was, you know, it kicked off a very long, long process of us figuring out how to shoot in Vietnam because no one had ever done it like this. No one no one had taken a movie this big there before. You know, the last American movie to really sh- have shot there was The Quiet American, which was a very, very small film. So it was a huge, massive undertaking to go there. Um, I think Goodman's amazing in this scene. Um, he uh, he just brings it really hard. He's so, so engaging to watch. Um, but back to that scene about the beans and the uncon- unconventional encounter, like um, I just, I, I wanted the movie to have as, as many moments like that. And I think that's like the first real moment. If like, if you're not super tapped in where I think the audience like knows it's fully okay to laugh. You know, not like a bunch of the stuff earlier is very kind of left of center and you're uncertain. Like whether, how, how much it's trying to be funny. And um, I just think they're so good there. It's like, it's such... It just seemed like you you needed weird absurdity in a movie like this to make it feel real. This stuff's in Australia. Um all these bugs and uh floaties are all added in post and that stuff adds so much to the vibe of this island. These are shots that I was convinced were never gonna be in the film. This was like this was a wheat field by one of our locations and I was just so obsessed with it and um uh it's like such a malicky thing and one day I just like stole all of our actors and had them walk through it and um and I love shit like that. Uh, so this is Vietnam, uh, also just an incredibly gorgeous location. I mean, look at these mountains. Look at this. They, this is literally like a soccer field, essentially, where where local kids play soccer. Um, and this creature, the, the water buffalo, as we call it, is, you know, this scene sort of represents like the message of the film, right? Like, don't don't overreact. Put your gun down. Observe. Not everything's trying to kill you. Enjoy the moment. But this creature was the the breaking point and the breakthrough in terms of all of our creature designs because we weren't trying to, or I didn't want to do dinosaurs. You know, the last film in DUD Dinosaurs, Jurassic World had just come out, like, what's the point? And so we had so many designs of of other creatures, and really this is the one that pushed it forward because we got these concepts back and suddenly there was like a mythic quality in it and a spiritual quality and, and it had a very like Miyazaki elegance to it where it was gorgeous and sort of um, untamed at the same time. So that creature almost got cut from the movie about 900 times uh, and that scene almost got cut 900 times because in theory the plot can move forward without it but I think it's actually like a very very crucial moment in the film. Um, this was intended to be a much larger montage of, uh, the men's helmets. Maybe one day I'll do a, a director's cut and you'll see my unnecessary, like, uh, helmet montage. Um, but that water buffalo really inspired the vibe of the rest of the creatures, where if Kong is the god of the island, these creatures are the, the gods of the individual domains. So, you know, much like the, the spider coming up right now, um, You know, there's something sort of beautiful and elegant about it, and this is his domain, yet it's terrifying at the same time. Um, This spider, I just, you know, when you're making a monster movie and you're you're a geek and you're a dork, you get this opportunity to, like, design your monsters and to see these images and moments that you would never see before. And this right here is, like, my Cannibal Holocaust (laughs) homage right there, which I cannot believe is in this film to some degree, and hopefully I think that's a testament to how fun the movie is. Uh, but that shot right there is almost like one-to-one a piece of concept art, and that was the moment that I was like, oh yeah, I want these sort of spider creatures um, whose legs are sort of designed like bamboo, and you know, it just I just wanted it to feel like things that it, you'd never seen before. Um, even things like this, like I didn't want it to shoot webs, I just like we'd seen webs. like." you know the whole sort of mantra of this movie like how do we elevate beyond expectation how do we show people things they haven't seen before so yeah it's this weird big spider but it's got bamboo legs and it's got these like crab pinchers and it shoots these tendrils out of its chest and initially like its stomach was going to open up as this weird like venus fly trap where it was bringing uh, mills here as opposed to these pinchers um, but that felt like it made. suddenly it was like almost a little alien like um, this is one of my favorite scenes in the film though Like, I just think it's so fun and I, I love all these kind of POV first person shooter shots but also to me this is like the scene that kind of I think is very much like you know a Vietnam gunfight with monsters and I love the way Vietnam films are, are, are shot where a lot of the action is very tight to be sort of claustrophobic and disorienting this is another montage we call the aftermath where um if i had my brothers this would have gone on another <laughs> minute and a half just cuz i love kind of like uh, meandering ethereal uh beautiful reaction shots like that like a big part of the movie to me was this pitch of i want to be able to linger on your faces i want to be able to just like feel what you guys are going through you know in addition to these these big giant monster moments Um, and so there's a bunch of beautiful footage of them there and I would have uh, absolutely kept that going uh, a bit longer but you know my (laughs) my threshold for um, lyrical imagery is not quite necessarily I think conducive to like big blockbusters sometimes so you know you kind of make these concessions or say okay we should keep moving because this is meant to be a ride. Um, This set is funny because that arch right there, yeah. You know, this is the first time that you start to see like the Ewe paint, which we get a much better look at later. But that arch is actually a throwback to. Um, there's a scene um, in Full Metal Jacket where they're uh, in this bombed out village, and um, uh, it had these like circle arches, and I love the idea of taking that imagery and kind of making something tribal out of it. And so here, shots like that, and right there really sort of see the way the paint and and the villagers kind of align. And, and I, you know, this paint was a huge, huge, huge undertaking because, you know, in a lot of Kong movies, the portrayal of the the villagers naturally sort of like falls into these weird stereotypes and is super racist. And um, I just wanted to do something different with them. And and when I started playing around with this idea of like this almost 8-bit anachronistic, like right angle, hard edge paint as opposed to very tribal paint... Uh, which felt like modern uh, in a weird way, like almost circuit boarding. But I, I love the idea that it was a combination of things, like you, you understand that it's like decorative, but then you understand that it, it has a um, uh, an actual purpose of being used as camouflage, as we saw them come out of the walls, but also, as you see later, there's there's much more intricate stuff in the in the paint and in the scarification where there's sort of a language built into it. Um, and i just i, I just kind of love that idea um john c Riley's is obviously incredible here um every time he comes out you know to me this is where the movie uh completely sort of becomes a different film in a good way and i just think he's able to do things like this that would be over the top with another actor and yet he's so talented that uh, he's able to Do things that are absurd that he, much like in my last movie with Biagio, he says and does things that should break the film. That should, like, break the tone, should break your engagement of it, and instead it actually sort of makes it more real and grounds it even more. And that's just a huge testament to him. Um, And with those iwi, the the villagers, like, I love the idea of them having these scarves and these sort of robes, and and that stuff is very, like, manga and video game. This is a protected site in Vietnam. This is, like, in Ha Long Bay. And it's like literally like a woman, a woman's little hut is right behind where that gun was in that last shot. And it's like a little fishing encampment. And it's like it's one of the most beautiful places you've ever stepped foot on. This was the last day of shooting right here, um, and it was it was so great because it was a crew of I don't know like maybe thirty people, and it was just me and Toby in the water and uh, uh, just finding this stuff. Um, but it was one of those locations where you're just like, oh my god. I wanted to shoot there and it was such a hard remote location to get to and so the way that we were able to make it happen was by, you know, initially it was supposed to be a scene where Packard and his men actually see this happen. And by making it Toby and just one person that allowed us to like strip down our crew so intensely. These to me are some of the best shots in the movie, like these wide shots here of Kong, the way he interacts with this water. I just think it was like magical and, and then this scene like obviously it's it's to make good on like monster on monster action and obviously it's it's sort of a in an updating and a throwback to the Toho version of Kong versus Godzilla where he fights the squid but I wanted these reflective moments shots like this where you sort of see him taking in his own presence and then the low angle shot right here as, he, as he's drinking to kind of like where you, he makes his own waterfall. You know, and there was such kind of like wish fulfillment, like there's an aspirational quality to that. And um, and so obviously it's meant to be this like giant kind of monster battle. But the bigger thing about this scene to me was actually, I love the idea that it was like a day in the life. It's a slice of the life of what Kong has to go through every single day just to get by. And so the camera's not like sweeping around. It's relatively locked off. You know, it's meant to kind of be shot in a little bit of a planet Earth way where it's like, yeah, we could get those angles. How we got those angles was difficult, but we could get them. Um, and I just, I love the idea that it's actually this quiet moment. It's this moment right here. This is about the struggle. I mean, beyond this being like a very intentional old boy homage, which was very fun to show this movie to Park Chen Um he thought this was pretty amazing. Uh, but I, I this was a piece of concept art that came in just with the squid over his face. And to me, the scene's about this. Like, yeah, these, the other stuff's amazing, but this is the, like, the quiet moment. This is the, what it is to be Kong, what it is to see him wounded, what his struggle is. And I just, you know, that's, when those shots started coming back, the, the stuff the people at ILM was doing was just incredible. You know, we actually gave them, you know, Toby did some facial cap for that, and he was chewing uh, red vines. Live, we'll be all right. That wall. Is that supposed to keep out that thing? Nah, he's not the one that's trying to keep out. What?
1: These people live up on the top of the...
0: Um, There's a dead rabbit on that uh, that table, which is a reference to uh, Kings of Summer. Um, I love this set. This was such an incredible thing. This is in Vietnam. Um, These are all sort of local Vietnamese um, who we're all just so excited to be there um i bill corso the guys that did this this makeup they just absolutely crushed it you know and uh one thing that people don't that people haven't really talked about <laughs> that I thought would be one of the first few things people would see is marla's jacket says lizard company on it and uh that's this weird sort of reference travis in taxi driver wears his jacket and on his jacket it's a patch that says king kong company um and so obviously i couldn't have him wear a king kong company patch (laughs) but uh, i just loved the idea that it was sort of this like weird mirror of that um the wanderer here was a weird idea that i had because initially in the script there was this thing called like boat city before they got to the village they actually discovered like another set of villagers of people who had washed up there and it was like kind of this weird like steampunk village made out of boats and boat parts um and that that whole thing sort of got cut as the script changed. so this is sort of the last remnant of that and the wanderer is the novelizations form of the venture from the 1933 film which in my own uh mythology kind of implies like maybe those People went to that island in that film and all those things happened, but they just never took Kong back to <laughs> to New York. Um, this set was incredible. This was probably our most expensive set and was uh, built in a full stage and they just crushed it. And, you know, these the, using this sort of this Iwi paint in this language. You know, we were trying to figure out how to do, you know, what is essentially an exposition dump. But how do you do an exposition dump and not just look at pictures and, and do something interesting with it? And um I'd see a bunch of sort of like street art and um and things online of kind of some parallax images like this, um where you look at it from one perspective and it looks like gibberish and then you stand in the right spot, even like chalk paintings on the ground. And I, I love this idea of like the villagers almost were very evolved, where like it's almost this on Rails experience where as you walk through this shrine, if you're on the right path, you watch this like you know very advanced and yet like rudimentary animation happen. And so uh, those things were really difficult to do um, because they have to be sort of readable but feel uh, practical. It, it took a lot of, a lot of revisions, but I'm really I'm really proud of all that stuff. Um, I love all this stuff, too. I think Kong's great here. Uh, ILM completely killed it, and, you know, this is obviously kind of the big... One of the big jokes from the trailers, and, you know, ironically, like, this was a huge issue. Because um, I I didn't want to... I thought the name Skullcrawler was so weird. And so that's why we had the joke initially of him just saying, Eh, it sounds neat. And that's where the joke ended. He just said, It sounds neat. And so he was kind of like... Uh, you know, throwing it under the bus a little bit. And then all of this came out on the day as we were improvising it because we just, we felt like we needed to protect it even more. Like, that's such an absurd name, and so we needed to really push it. And, you know, I think Tom and Bree and, and John especially are just so good in this, and I think it, like, hopefully kind of represents, I think, the irreverence of this film to some degree and the ability to, like, call out these ridiculous things. I really wanted to call the creature MacArthur at first because I really love the. idea. I love when people like have a dog and they name it Kevin or something and it's superhuman, um, and I love the idea of them. But like, why do you call it that? And just they were like, ah, oh, it's like General MacArthur. You can't stop it, you know. So it's all like sort of uh, personal to the story. Um, just because I just didn't buy that the they would have real names for these things. Any of the creatures, there aren't like zoologists on this island. The animal- it gets to them when they're still small. Um, I love this shot. This was a thing where we were running out of money and we had to have this fight, and so it was like, okay, let's do it in one shot. And then it was just really going to Scott Benza and, and our, our animation team and being like, okay, like, we need to make this crazy. I want to have a bunch of snap zooms and I want it to be super manga. I want it to be just very anime and like and intense and, uh, um, and let's try and do it in one shot um, because initially it was several shots and that was becoming too expensive for us. And uh, I'm really proud of that last stuff. And I just, I love the imagery and the introduction of the first time you see the skull crawler with the blood on its face. Cause it was actually always sort of pitched to this, is this like, uh, you know, like there was an image of like a, a, a tiger and a lion that had just come up from eating someone. And it just had blood all over its face. And I found it so evocative and, um, you know, Kong's the protector. That thing with John C. Riley slapping Tom, that also was an improvised moment where he sort of, there was one take where he just gave him a light slap and, you know, that's just sort of the way that we worked on set where he gave him one slap and, you know, I have this stupid, weird sense of humor where I was like, oh, that's really funny. Just keep slapping him. And Tom, you like, just be be completely serious and John be completely ridiculous and just keep it going for too long. and It's in the film. Uh, these bird creatures took a really long time to design. I mean, Through so many variations of it where we just didn't want it to look like pterodactyls. Um, and I love the idea of them kind of being the crackheads of the island. Uh, they're just so like, jittery and weird and like the hyenas and the lion king or something. Uh, and uh, my assistant Brian made the observation at one point he was like, Oh, the color scheme on them reminds me of the old Jurassic Park toys, uh, just <laughs> these really primary bright colors. And I was like, Oh, yeah, that's pretty funny because those toys were so ridiculous. Um, that scene where the, the the tree explodes, that that was actually sort of stemmed from a bigger set piece we had in the film at one point, where they were like in a forest and they set off a noise and the whole forest exploded, and they realized that they were in like this stripped down, like derelict boneyard of trees essentially, um, and they were in this massive sort of um, uh, fight with these with these birds, and some of that that's where the gas mask scene actually like originally sort of took place, and then we sort of uh, stuck it in the boneyard but I just loved that image and it was just something that uh, just kept coming back um, so this is the boat I'm very proud of this boat um, it's sort of my like toys house house in this film this like ramshackle built from nothing stuff you know we we had a um, we had a bunch of designs of the boats so it was always meant to be sort of a bit of an apocalypse now thing and At one point we were like getting our images to show to Warner Brothers and some producer said like, "Uh, don't show them the boat, it's not cool enough. And I was like, well then we failed, like the job is not done. So we completely restarted and uh, uh, there was a concept artist that I found, uh, this guy Ignacio who um, I just said one day like, what does a boat look like if it's made out of plane parts? And the image that he brought back uh, was just perfect. You know, this, like, B-29 frame and, like, using the wings up front is this, like, weird sort of like battering ram and having one wing from the Japanese Zero and one wing from the P-51 just felt like such a an amazing statement and combination of things, and I'm really proud of this boat. Um, it's called the Gray Fox, which is a very obvious reference to uh, Metal Gear Solid. Um, this is one of my favorite scenes in the film, also one of those things that I kind of can't believe we... Uh, we got away with. Um, uh, This is me operating the camera and uh, the DP for my last movie, Ross Rigi operating a lot of this stuff as well. And this is, everyone else went to lunch and me and Bree and these extras stayed behind. And the fact that there is a shot in this film of like actual Vietnamese farmers and villagers in tribal makeup throwing up a peace sign is remarkable to me. That was one of those things we shot on set and then I was like, this is never going to be in the film. Um, and that song um, was sent to me um, by a friend, um, my buddy Aton, when I first started this. Um, and I just fell in love with that song and I always wanted it to be in the film. And I'm so happy it is because it's not a very well-known song of the era. Um, and uh, it's just, to me, like those smaller moments, those like uh, montage-y sort of like human moments... I think Bree's so fantastic in that scene too. But those moments to me are sort of like what these movies need. And uh, yeah, I, I always thought that scene was gonna get cut because it's an easy thing to cut. And like I said, I think that's a testament to our studio for letting us put in some crazy stuff like that. And then when she walks through the wall, I love the idea that you see the fortification of it. You see like how kind of like vicious and spiked it is. You know, I didn't talk about the wall earlier, but that was a really difficult thing to figure out in this film of like how does the wall sort of fit in with this movie where the, the the villagers don't live at the edge of the island like in the other films and they have a very different relationship with Kong. And so you want to play off of the imagery of the traditional King Kong films but sort of reinvent it. And so designing a wall that felt fresh um, was really difficult. And actually, like, <laughs> there was one wall at one point that was made out of, like, Boat parts uh, and like boats piled on top of each other, shipwrecks, things that have like wrecked up on the island and uh, some really, really cool designs. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with uh, where we ended up with it, where I think it pays great honor to sort of what came before, but, but does new things. This is Vietnam, too. This was uh, this was a day that we had to go and we took like a van to a boat a boat to a smaller boat, a boat to an even smaller boat, and then we were on set and John Goodman looked at me and he said, I think that's the best commute I've ever taken to work. And at that moment you're like, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> I will take that compliment. This is actually, I think, the second thing we shot in Vietnam. And um, it's just, I mean, look at those mountains, look at this landscape, it's, it's just, you don't see things like this in the rest of the world. Like um, Shea Wiggum's so great here. This was one of the scenes that I went to Derek Connolly and I just said, I want to, I want to see a scene where you see one of the soldiers talking about like using, you know, an AK versus an M16 and just like these small sort of like specific character details. It was from talking to like George Cottle, our stunt guy, and like some armorers about uh, the weapons of the air and just like giving it these weird things that, that felt authentic to to Vietnam, and I think everyone's so great in this scene. But yeah, uh, uh, just that imagery of like the bloody handprint was also one of those. You know, in a lot of instances, our um, our script was being led by our concept art because we were so far ahead in concept art and things we wanted to see, but the script was so far behind just because we we had to sort of like, you know, s- start from s- from scratch uh, when I pitched in the idea of the 70s. So we had that piece of concept art of this bloody handprint and we sort of said, okay, how do we work this in the story? This is probably my favorite scene of the film. Um, pretty much all of this scene is entirely improvised. Um, like, did the Cubs from the World series, that was in the script, but then all the stuff before it about they take the summers off, all of this, this is all just riffing. So this is a moment where you're in Vietnam, a country that's never shot a movie like this. You're with John C. Riley, Thomas Mann, Tom Middleston, and John Ortiz, and you're improvising a scene on a boat that you designed and you just have to reflect and you're like what an incredible experience this is. And this is a scene that like unequivocally goes on too long, way too long. But it's so good and so much fun and, like, you know, it was one of those maddening things. When you do improv like this, you're like, oh, is any of this stuff going to work? Like, it's so insane. And uh, that's just a testament to these guys. And, uh, you know, it, it should be a scene where, like, you can't stop the movie, like, in the, the tense movie like this and just have, like, a kind of meandering, like, joke of a scene. But it's it's probably my favorite scene in the whole film just because of how weird it is and how, like, all that's improvised. And the fact that the Cubs won the World Series that year is madness. Like we could have never imagined. Um, so this is a location in Australia. Um, I just became obsessed with the idea of like dead trees. There was something in Hawaii um, that sort of inspired that, that the, the, the birds leaving the trees like I said before. There was this field where all of the trees had died and so it was like this boneyard of trees. And then we found this place in Hawaii which I just thought was so sort of stark and striking. and uh this stick creature like i just love the fact that it's sort of this terrifying thing at first and then it's so sad and he shouldn't have shot him and he's such a jerk and now he dies because he shot this this poor animal but i love this scene just because audiences in a theater like jump at both of these moments pretty hard um there was one other scene with toby Kebble sort of in between here where uh Uh, before he dies, uh, which was just sort of him, you know, wandering, and, you know, there's some great sort of like, uh, there's just, you know, he becomes like a silent character at a certain point, and so it's all in his expression. There was great stuff there, but uh, it just didn't uh, make the cut for timing. This is another scene that I love. Um, John and everyone are so good here. I love the remnants of his house here actually like in the background of this shot you can see just the remnants there's an old movie camera which is the same camera they had in the 1933 film um, and uh, there's so many weird nods like that actually like the top of the record player uh, it has the same sort of serial number and writing that the the box from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark that they put the, the Ark of the Covenant in as they take it away at the end um, that's like the the lettering on top of the record player. Um, all this language is also very inspired by like uh, beyond eight bit stuff. It, it very much there's like some some stuff in Zelda Twilight Princess that it that it sort of is riffing off of. What? I'm gonna stab you by the end of the night. Really? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Isn't it odd? The most dangerous places are always the most beautiful. Hmm. I'm trying to take a long exposure photograph, but my flashlight broke. Oh, um. try this. Thank you. Royal Air Force? My father's. He threw it to me from the train as he rolled off to fight the Nazis. He was like John Wayne to me, some kind of mythic hero. Did he come back? His plane went down near Hamburg. They searched for him for months, but... I suppose no man comes home from war. Not really. Mills, quit dicking around. I'm going on perimeter. I always love the idea of just sort of this like the most intense aurora that you've ever seen uh at night on this island uh at one point there was actually like a big sort of like gunfight battle um, uh at night set over this and once again, this all just kind of stemmed from my like, concept art it was it was us trying to drive the script and just like literally thinking, okay, as they're writing this, like, what do you want to see? What haven't you seen before? Uh, and so we just we generated so much concept out of this movie. And I had so many incredible people that I was working with. And, you know, um, uh, it just really, we were trying to just drive it from there. What haven't we seen? Anytime it felt redundant, we just, we, we threw it out or cut it. Um this scene was uh this is probably like the only time that you sort we of cut to kong by himself you know like he's sort of we like we transition there through the actors um sort of with the with the vo but this is the only time in the film that we really cut to kong without a human seeing it and i was really adamant that we don't just cut to kong's perspective so gunpei Akari, who's the japanese soldier played by Miyavi you know, his sword, those triangles on the sword are a reference to, uh, the knife, uh, the blade in Princess Mononoke. And Gunpei Akari is a, uh, a mixture of Gunpei Yokoi, who, um, was the creator of, um, um, the Metroid series and the Game Boy and, um, died in a tragic car crash, uh, a while ago. And, um, um, Shinji Ikari from, uh, Evangelion, um, it really was a very nerdy combination of things in my life. And there's another fun reference on that sword that um, I'm not going to tell you. But there is a, there is a, an etching on the sword um, that's, uh, that is like a bigger blade that just uh, when you do research on katanas, it was like a blade that slayed a dragon. Um, and that's what the long sort of etching is along the blade itself. And I just wanted to you know, like infuse the movie with as much sort of like uh, mythic qualities as possible just like I said this this movie to me is to some degree about like what happens when we lose myth and sort of being like reconfronted with myth in our lives um, this scene initially was like this, this big to do as the villagers are like chasing them out and uh, coming after them aggressively and it just didn't make sense with the vibe of what the villagers were and I just loved the idea that they were enlightened and that they were there was this peaceful quality, and them and Marlowe were able to sort of, like, interact with each other without words. And this is just a testament to John here. Like, I love his performance and this stuff, and I love the mist going by in the background, but to be able to have this, like, sort of sensitive goodbye and then to get this joke in. If you're ever in Chicago, look me up, I guess. I mean, not a lot of people can do that. And, like, you know, I love movies that play with tone like that, but a big part of that is, like, John just really making a character that can walk that line. And being able to work with with those villagers, um, you know, those Vietnamese, like the the, the two in blue who are sort of the elders, um, you know, that's just life moment stuff. And, you know, right here, you know, you see the wall, and, yeah, it's made out of these bigger logs, and it's, you know, it still sort of has this, like, deconstructed still building scaffolding feel but the big thing that i'm actually really proud of with the wall is the way the gate opens it was like okay how do we see a gate open how do we do this in a way that feels different because you've seen a gate open on a big wall a million times in movies um and so the the wall itself wasn't as aggressive in terms of the design as i wanted uh but uh i'm really proud of the the mechanisms and and what it is essentially this is all vietnam obviously gorgeous Uh, this montage used to be much, much longer, which maybe you'll see one day. Um, and it was originally set to Wild World by Cat Stevens. And I thought that was amazing. It was very on the nose, but it was very, very cool. It just didn't have the drive, you know, like it's this part of the movie. Like you want to like pick up the pace and, and you just want to keep going. Um, but maybe one day you'll see that. Once again, I'm really proud of that boat. I hope that they make a cool action figure of it someday. Uh, Not an action figure, but like a model, a toy. Um, But all that Vietnam footage, like, you know, to shoot montage stuff is so time-consuming. And there was a lot more of it. Um, And maybe you'll see it someday. Um, John's so good here. Um, You know, this sort of, like, he just has such a simple arc. And he like he just has simple wants in the scene. And, and I find that uh, why it's so easy for audiences to have to go with him. But, you know, I've talked about myth a couple of times before. And the thing that I keep talking about with myth is uh, just this idea of, like, right now in the world, you could pick up your phone and Google, does Santa Claus exist? And then, like, myth is destroyed. Uh, and myth is how we've told stories for thousands and thousands of years. And it's just funny to me because... Um, in the 70s, it wasn't like that. When I was growing up, it wasn't like that. And, you know, beyond being such a terrible, horrific, sad tragedy, I think the reason that, that Malaysian Airlines flight disappearing was such a big deal is because people live in a world where they're like, what do you, a plane can't just disappear. What do you mean a plane can disappear? That can't happen. Um, and I just, I love the idea of what happens when you're confronted with myth and, you know, Kong representing the unknown and and things greater than ourselves and and that we don't know everything and that myth is important in our lives. Um, it's, uh, you know, in the seventies was sort of the split of like science taking over. There's that journey mountain again. Um, that stuff on the boat. Thomas Mann and Jason Mitchell, they were shot at different times. I really love all that plot stuff. It's just so weird. We actually shot Jason's side first, which gave uh, Thomas the the freedom to sort of play. Even, like, the the crazy Santa Claus, all that stuff is is improvised. Um, That's a sad end to John Ortiz. Um, (laughs) You'll notice he literally, once he's on the island, It's a very Call of Duty moment right there. And this is my, like, E.T. in the moon moment. (laughs) Um, But you'll notice he never lets go of his briefcase the entire film. It's like his earthly possession that he clings on to. And and then at the very end, it's literally ripped away from him with his arm as he's out of his element. Um, But that's a moment that I love because it's, you know, much like when Shea Wiggum dies at the end, it's got a real blackness to the humor of it and so it like it's one of those moments that can be a real intense jump but then half the audience is going to laugh because they know that it's okay to laugh at it because it's insane and then half the audience is going to uh be very (laughs) uncomfortable by the whole thing uh and so yeah i i just love all those small little flourishes as he as he flies away into the to the sun. And this movie has a lot of flares. I love flares. Kings of Summer has a bunch of flares. Um, you know, Panavision designed us a special set of lenses. And it's funny working with the effects guys because, uh, you know, you're like there's a bunch of visual effects shots where we added flares. That obscure things and obscure Kong and and to me it just makes it feel integrated and it makes it feel real. Uh, but it, it's funny because people are like, well, why would you why would you add a flare over the shot? We did such amazing work on this shot and you know I, I, and even my sensibilities in general are so sort of like anime and video game and <laughs> Asian that uh, you know I think Jeff White, our our supervisor, about a year into the process, came to me and said, oh, I think we finally get your sensibilities. <laughs> Uh, just because you know the the physics in this film, the way Kong moves, the way he behaves, there's really more to do with like, uh, eh, like something like Evangelion than the way physics would actually work. Like the shockwaves when he lands, like they, they really are these like massive shockwaves as opposed to these like just dust kicking up and just everything's sort of like exaggerated on that level. And it's sort of tough to get people to tap into it, and the ILM guys really stepped up. But If we reach that position and he's not there, we don't send out a search party. We're back here by nightfall. Understood. In 24 hours, we have to be on the other side of this island. Roger that. Hear you loud and clear. All right you hurt the man? Moving out at 10. It's a good group of boys. We're all gonna die together out here. You're a good group of boys to die with. I'll tell you that much. He <laughs> should have come here. <laughs> I'm just a firm believer that... Um, you can plan all you want and you can have the most beautiful storyboards on the planet and the most beautiful plans on the planet, but like, until you're there on the day, in wardrobe, with your actors, with cameras up, you're never, you never... There's always a way to make something more real or more raw or more authentic. And, you know, Just so much greatness came out when... When you know you give someone like John C. Riley the freedom, and 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 he puts trust in you, and you put trust in him, you know you get stuff like that. Yeah. This shot's actually kind of inspired by uh, there's a scene. God, there's this, there's a this shot in Raiders when Indy like runs out as Marion's been taken away, and he runs right up to camera, uh, and his eyes are right there, and then the camera starts pulling back, and it's just like Spielberg firing on all cylinders. We'll I just love the idea as they approach the boneyard itself, you have these like very sort of abstract shapes. And once again, you kind of have this moment that's like kind of beautiful and wonderful uh, and awe inspired, but like sad and like out morose. And so, you know, that's kind of like what the pre boneyard scene is. Um, and now we're in the real boneyard. So, do you notice Jason Mitchell's uh, helmet says Birdman on it? <laughs> Which I love uh, for anyone who doesn't know, he's a rapper or a game spitter, as you will, um so this is the boneyard this is this was a sequence that uh also was stemmed from a piece of concept art. I love the idea of this image where you're learning about Kong's mythology as you go, right, so you're seeing his parents having perished together, you're seeing like you know much like those photos of old skeletons that they've found where they're holding hands or laying next to each other that they uncover from Pompeii or or wherever. You know, I love the idea of Kong's parents having faced this similar death and and this boneyard. You know, I love the color scheme in this movie and I love we did really aggressive things with the color, um, which if you've seen Kings of Summer, I sort of pushed similar sort of uh, heightened colors um, where you're really pumping them almost like it's like an old-school like in-camera filtration where you drop drop like a, a grad or a chocolate filter so like these really intense grads dropping down which is not how conventional movies are really colored um, and I just I so many of these movies feel kind of bland and the same to me and they have the same look and it was really important to me that this movie like be beautiful and look different um, and there are times when people would look at the color and be like, whoa, 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 we can't do that. And then eventually you're like, oh, like, you know, then we started dropping trailers and you see the reaction of people saying like, oh, my God, I love how this looks or it looks so different or whatever. And and then, you know, I, I think people buy in and they really go for it. And once again, that just goes back to ultimately kind of being supported. Um, but, uh, yeah. So the Boneyard stem from original concept art, you know, just things about being like, I want to see a... Uh, 50 caliber on a triceratops skull or I want to see, you know, once again it's like making it on the concept, I want to see a Vietnam gunfight in a prehistoric boneyard, and I love the idea you know, this creature right here, the skull crawler being this inelegant thing that like it's just puking things up like dislodging its jaw from the side and like just, you know, it's very much it's inspired by the there's a creature in the 1933 film that has these two big legs and it's the only like non-dinosaur in the film um, but it's, in, it's kind of like riffing off of that and the inelegance of the creature in the host, uh, which just evolved poorly. And then it's this weird combination of like no face from spirited away and the first angel from Evangelion and Cubone from Pokemon and wears its mother's skull on its face. Um, and I just love the idea of its translucency. Like that's my, that's my, my moment where I can make my, my movie monster. And so like that thing took so much time. And then to have a set piece like this, like this was just this dumb idea of like, oh, okay, so it's got like semi translucent skin, and then a camera flash goes in its body. And then you have this moment kind of like from the first Alien where you know, you hear the bing, bing, bing. And you know, the whole process really was like, okay, if we're having this scene, we have like we constantly have to see things we've never seen before. When have you seen that image before? When have you seen this scene before? you know and like as crazy as they are I'd rather have these insane moments where you feel like you haven't seen them because I just feel like so many of these big movies don't give audiences that anymore you know and that's why I went to the movie as a kid it's just to see shit I've never seen um and I love that um you know I love being able to have that that freedom to say like okay we've got this prehistoric boneyard with all this ash falling and you're in this like green yellow red color world and uh, you know, and then there's a camera flash inside this beast, and John C. Riley speaking "death before dishonor" in Japanese. Uh, I love that stuff. You know, this right here, um, uh, is to sort of set up the tongue at the end, just to see another piece of this creature, and it's obviously cool and awesome. Uh, Brie runs like a movie star. Uh, you'll see the tree creature kind of slips in that last shot there. Like that's one of those things, kind of like the host, where like it just doesn't even have its balance down. It it's not, it's just not right. Um, but that creature took forever to design. Um, it just there was so many revisions. Like all of the creatures, literally, we went through thousands of them. And if we felt like you'd seen it before, it just had to go, you know. And it, 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 we just needed like, when have you seen this? <laughs> have you seen his skull explode with fire shooting? Like that was another, that's another direct piece of concept art. Uh, and it really was just like just spitballing with this incredible team of people to be like okay how do we make good on this imagery this gas mask thing was the same thing i sent this you know like i said this stuff with the birds was kind of like merging a different set piece into this one which is why it is like a little uh contained um But it just was, like, too insane to not. Like, John C. Riley slicing birds with a katana? Yes, please. And then this is what I call Gas Mask Samurai, which is uh, a piece of concept art I sent Tom. And, you know, this is all him in the gas mask learning this thing. And he's just so physical and so great. But it's like, I've never seen that before. And, you know, it's funny. This scene was on the chopping block for a long time. Uh some people really thought it was too much and um, I was like well I think it looks amazing and I've never seen it before but really the the selling point to me was we had a screening and there were like two like 9 year old 10 year old boys in front of me and when that scene came on they just looked at each other and their eyes just like they went oh (laughs) you know and at that point to me it was like well this has to stay in the film now Um, and it was one of those moments, it's like, it's a super divisive thing where on like test cards, like some people would list it as one of their favorite things in the film and some people would list it as one of their least favorite. And I just think it's like, it's, you know, I I would rather have things in movies that are divisive like that than things that just like kind of go down the middle the entire way. And, uh, you know, I, I almost still can't believe it's in the film, but, you know, just finding ways to show people crazy things, things you haven't seen before. Uh, there was the movie always had a bunch more footage like that that flare kind of coming through the trees like I just I love all that kind of like lyrical ethereal stuff there's a bunch of the stuff that stuff with toby and and a bunch of the other actors, um, just them in the jungle and like I said, I think this movie would be like ten minutes longer just with like montage and ethereal footage of, <laughs> if I had my druthers and i 'm pretty sure i 'm probably the only person that would like that movie uh, but ultimately you like you sort of make the the decision that's like best for for you know this larger audience is you really need people to go to the theater and like we want them to go on a ride like i'm really happy that most people walk out of this movie and they're like oh i feel like a little kid again uh like you you sense that awe, like you you sense that, that that journey you're going on and um i you know when you put in a bunch of imagery like that it really sort of slows you down natural um, competition they proliferate out of Yeah, this scene took like two days to shoot and it's just you know this is one of the few scenes in the movie where everyone's together and everyone's not walking you know everyone's walking the whole rest of the film uh so every time you have these sort of stationary scenes it's like and just like blocking a scene with like 15 people very maddening it's a lot you'll find your sea stallion three clicks up that ridge I'm going to take these. It's stories. a lot. Um, wait for you there. But uh, right. it was also just really difficult to split these characters up and uh, like to have all this happen. This scene actually was originally <laughs> intended to take place in the boneyard still where we just were. Except in Hawaii, we got <laughs> we got our set flooded. Like We probably lost five days of shooting because in Hawaii, it rains every 10 minutes to begin with. See? you running with the big dogs or staying on the porch? I don't be on the porch. Uh, literally, we showed up to set one day and, uh, like, our base camp had a river flowing through it. Like, our set washed that? away in, like, true Star Wars fashion. And uh, so we lost a bunch of time. So we are like, oh, my God, we, we don't have time to, like, shoot the Boneyard sequence and this. How do we do it? Um, so we had to move this location, which is why, you know, it always feels a little abrupt to me. Um but it was intended to like still take place. It was meant to be in the aftermath of after that creature just died and they're still in the smoke, and it was more of a continuous thing. And then nature had other plans. Make sure those get back to his family. Right here, you can kind of hear the, this trumpet in the background, which is a real testament to uh, Henry Jackman, who's a genius, um, and did such an amazing job with the score of this film. But, you know... Vietnam was not a clean-cut conflict. Uh, it was it was in a world of gray, whereas World War II was sort of a war of heroes and villains and things like that. And that trumpet, to me, just had such a World War II vibe. And it was one of those things where he was having this soloist play this trumpet, and I, it became like a cowbell moment of, like, more cow, more cowbell, more trumpet. Um, I just fell in love with it because it had that, like, old revenance and that throwback feel. And in my mind, that's where Packard's head was at because, you know, the reason that— um, we brought Henry Jackman on being a genius as he was the guy who really responded to this crazy idea that I had about the score where I was like, I want to have like themes and I want it to feel like a big movie, but I also want half the soundscape to like be built out of uh, electric guitar, you know, and like that sort of Hendrix sound. And so in a lot of points in the movie, you hear that ding, 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 like this very like warped kind of like maddening guitar sound that represents, I think like a, it helps sort of ground you in the, in the era and the Vietnam of it all, but I think it also just sort of represents like Packard's weird headspace and, and how unhinged it is. And, and so that World War II element, A, I think it just, it's so sort of sad. Um, but it, there's just like a power to it and it sort of calls back a different era. In that last scene, uh, You'll notice that Ant's thing is not even on camera because we improvised it. Like that was one of those things that came out that John just dropped and we didn't have time to go back for it. And so it's, it was one of those things where I never even thought it was going to work. I thought it was just going to clearly sort of feel like it was off camera and it wasn't in the movie for a while. And then uh, in my director's cut stage, I tested it with an audience and it just killed them. Uh, <laughs> that, that's actually one of those moments where you just never know. You never know if it's going to go too far. Like Kings of Summer, Like you, it's a really tricky balance. And um, it, uh, it just it worked. And sometimes you're surprised. By, well, there are things that you love that sometimes will never work. Even though you love it, and then there are things that sometimes you're like, I don't think this is going to work, and it completely sort of sells it. Uh, this was another thing that was based on some initial concept art. You know, this is a really tricky thing that uh, tells you to trust your gut. Uh, Right here, Kong comes out of the fog and his eyes are glowing and we always had this initial concept art of him coming out of the fog and much like a heightened sort of comic book or something uh, or a manga or a piece of concept art, his eyes were glowing. And, you know, there are just times when, you know, people sort of say, ah, like that's not real. Like, it wouldn't actually glow. Why would that happen? You know what I mean? Like, why would his eyes be glowing? I don't understand. And you're like, "Well, <laughs> because I want them to, and because it ties into this sort of mythic larger than life quality of Kong as a god um and it became a big thing, like you know <laughs> somebody actually quit production over uh over this because like i don 't understand it, it just doesn 't make sense to me, and You know, you just luckily, like my producers in the studio were like they they, they backed the idea. But it's that moment where as a director, you have this thing in you saying this is what I think it needs to be. And this is why I think it needs to be that. And not everyone's going to going to see that. And you really just, you know, look, you have to listen to people. But your job also is to trust uh, your gut because that's what got you to where it got you. Um, This scene I'm really proud of. Uh, I love getting into Kong's eyes here. Uh, I, I love how much sort of emotion there is. I love how much uh, um, vulnerability there is there. That's, that's you know, that's industrial light and magic just really, really doing it. And as you see, he goes back into the fog and his eyes kind of turn into that mythical, godlike quality again. Um, uh, Brie and Tom, this was one of those scenes where, like, we were shooting it and you just you kind of knew it worked. You know you don't always get that and there was just such incredible stuff I love the shot that just goes from her hand to to Kong you know it's not even on her face it's just following her hand the whole way but yeah trust your gut any young directors listening to this just follow your gut Um, I love you know there's a lot of shots and sort of mirroring imagery of people holding down a weapon in the foreground and something happening in the background you see it uh, with Packard there, you see it with Marlowe uh, with the swords in the foreground to him. You see it with Kong, uh, with the tree and with the propeller. Like There's, there's a lot of sort of um, graphic rhyming with those and then with also with the shots of uh, the close-ups of the eyes. Uh, you know, one of the things when I first sort of pitched the actors and the reason that I I think got this incredible cast was really being able to go to them and say, this is a movie that's just as much about Kong punching a helicopter out of the sky as it is like lingering on your moments uh your your eyes your faces you know lingering on those those quiet moments uh this to me is a very dragon ball z moment right here (laughs) uh (laughs) not only does kong look uh very sane but uh you know it's also very like evangelion these big moons these big sort of exaggerated um skies and i just love that big wide 50 50 that standoff moment um you know that moon should not be that big um but but why not you know like why it's it's those things that like you know naturally like we even got a version back of the shot at one point where they're like okay so here's how the the moon would look normally and it's like yeah yeah, but it doesn't doesn't have the same vibe and like you know even just the way that fire spreads, it's like well that that you know you wouldn't get that much color on the on the burn but we just wanted to always make sure the movie, like, you know, I wanted it to feel like this weird sort of psychedelic, like acid trip almost, um, as you're sort of going through this crazy island. Um, these shots up here always remind me in a weird way of the, uh, the old King Kong ride. Um, I don't know why it just, when I got them back, that's just, I have such vivid memories of that ride when I was a kid. Um that's that electric guitar that I was talking about right there like, ding, 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 that's very much sort of tied to Packard and his men and it's just something that like Henry Jackman really went and experimented with and tried and tried different versions of you know in Kings of Summer we did something where the score kind of had like an 8-bit video game element to it and um, uh, it just it took a long time to find and Henry just killed it. Uh, this shot right here originally. Used to like invert the camera, used to like flip backwards with Kong. Um, and it was decided that it was gonna like make the audience throw up. Uh, I actually loved the shot, it was super insane. Um, but it just hinged backwards with him. Um, and uh, people were afraid the audience was gonna puke. So (laughs) sometimes you gotta change stuff to avoid vomit, that's just what happens in life. Um, this standoff was always kind of pitched as uh, the like full metal jacket moment, obviously. The intensity of it is probably nowhere near that, um, but uh, I just love that scene where they're all standing around, you know, the wounded girl, the sniper, and they're talking about the intensity of what they did. And for me, like, a big part of this film is what Sam says right here. Like, I just, I love the idea of the 70s and, and actually thinking that, like, as man, like, we own this place and we are the gods. And, like, it actually is his duty to, like, the world with everything they're hand going through with scandals and Watergate and riots, like, they can't handle the idea that a god exists. So it's, it's his job to take it down. Um... to me like what what sam says right here is <laughs> just another thing of like how do you always subvert you know when every time people like every time people watch that they're like oh boy here we go like sensitive movie speech time and then it just completely undercuts it you know and i just think there's there's a lot in this movie hopefully where i feel like people think it's going someplace and then it completely undercuts the moment um same thing when when Shay wickham dies in a little bit like you know, you think it's this heroic moment, the cliche of, like, guy sacrifices himself so the mission can go on, and uh, and then he just dies. Like, it's the darkest humor, the way he dies. It's so—he did absolutely nothing. And, like, the, like, I just wanted the movie to have as many of those moments as possible where it really—you think it's going someplace, or we need to fulfill something, and then it just—oh, did not expect that— Uh, The way that geyser bursts is based on kind of hot wind whales blow up water. And I love this idea of the shot of this massive geyser shooting up and you don't even see anything happen. And then the creature drops down from above. Um, It's such an insane, weird reveal. (laughs) Um, This is sort of the the mother uh, skull crawler, if you will. Um, Or the mother MacArthur, as we called it. The Big Mac. Um, As opposed to the Baby Mac. Uh... I just love Kong or Packard being trapped between these two beasts. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of debate about whether the, the skull crawler should kill Packard or Kong should. And for me, it was just always so clear that Kong needs to kill him. Like, you, you have to have that moment. Like, the, the, even though Kong is the hero, like he has to take him down. Die, you motherfucker! True Sam Jackson. This scene was actually kind of my nod to Gareth Edwards Godzilla. Like they had so many great things where they uh, they sort of take you away from the moment right right when it started. Uh, obviously, we wanted to play a very different game. You know, we wanted to show the creature right up front. Um, we wanted to really bring you into it, um, and not play that game where we're teasing you. And so that's sort of the one of the big teases where you like it's right about to start happening, and then. Uh, you could take it away. Uh, So this is uh, Van Long Marsh in Vietnam, which is a very beautiful location. All those shipwrecks and things are not really there. Um, This was an incredible thing because we were in Vietnam and the actors were in this water the whole time. And normally, the water was freezing. Normally, people would be so miserable. But look at this place. You know, like we were so fortunate to be there and yeah everyone was tired yeah everyone was cold like it was a whole thing but everyone knew how special it was that we were there because no one had been there like us no one had shot there and and so it was this special thing where we all kind of rallied and yeah it was miserable don't do not get me wrong i was in the water with them, <laughs> but uh um i think everyone just knew we, what we were doing we were so fortunate to be able to be there so the crew everyone kind of rallied it's also the end of the shoot. Um, I think Jason Mitchell and these guys are, are, are great here. This is one of my favorite moments in the film. And like I said, I just love the idea of taking the cliche of like, sci-fi movie, guy has to sacrifice himself so the mission can go on. And it's sad and it's like legitimately sad. And, and through, you know, Shay's so amazing here and through Jason, I think you feel something, but then it's so useless what he does. My favorite moment is actually in the theater, like, when people know it's okay to laugh at that, but then still be affected by the sadness of, of Jason's reaction. Um, so, you know, it's funny. For a long time, I actually resisted the idea of having this big monster battle at the end because I was like, well, the, 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 no, the movie's about, like, Kong and the humans and then once once it was like no 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 we're we're doing this monster battle then it became this thing where it's like okay like <laughs> let's unlock the keys to the kingdom of of like your childhood weird influences where it's like if i'm going to do a monster battle what is that going to be you know and i just love the idea of like showing stuff pretty wide and showing stuff in broad daylight and having them in this water and like the way they brawl here really has more to do with an anime and something like evangelion uh, or a video game than a lot of things, and I hope that people actually walk away from this movie, and it's like for the first time, uh, uh, people sort of associate like video games with a movie positively, because uh, video game action can be the worst thing for films. But I, I think that this movie like takes a lot of influences from from that stuff in a positive way, uh, and just like it's it's these moments where it's like. You know, then this is like about trying to like also tell you something about Kong's character, like show you that he's a thinking creature, so show you that that he's uh, this is a very Dragon Ball Z thing, <laughs> uh, show you that he's like you know if Kong is going to eventually fight Godzilla, like he's got to have something different. So these things show you like the the ingenuity of him. You know, like, in the same way, like, that—that that cr- the scene where they're at the lake and the lake's on fire, to me, that was really about, like, the ingenuity of man taking Kong down and sort of being an homage to him sort of being smoked. In the same way right here, this is an homage to, like, Kong and chains, you know, but sort of doing our own thing with it. Because we're not taking him back to New York, but we want to play off of sort of the imagery that people love and, and, and riff on it. So you know him stripping the tree him him using the um the propeller as like a ninja throwing star you know like him him ripping weaver out of uh out of the creature with the creature guts wrapped around his arm it's all those things where it's like well i haven't seen that before you know and and a lot of those things like you know they were not there was there was a long conversation up until the very end about whether the, the, him pulling the guts out at the end, well, people, whether people were going to get it, whether it was too much, whether it was too crazy, and I think that's one of people's favorite moments because they're like, "Whoa, I've never seen that before." But like, you know, how do you pay homage to what came before you with like you you play with the imagery of, of him in chains like this, but then you're completely doing something new. Uh, and so, once we sort of locked into being like, "Okay, we're going to do this monster battle," then it was just like, <laughs> off to the races where it was every weird thing that I wanted to see. And, and this is a real testament to, to ILM and our whole team and everybody involved of really putting our heads together. Like shooting in, in this swamp was not easy. People did not want, like, <laughs> ironically, they were like, all right, you can shoot one scene in the water, one scene. And then the whole sequence ended up being in the water. I was like, yeah, 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 just one scene, just one scene. It's fine, cool. The rest will be on land. <laughs> and then literally every other thing in the entire sequence is water. Um, I love that boat. I love that gun. I love that turret. I love how weird it is. I love Weaver shooting that flare in the creature's eyes. I actually didn't want the creature to have eyes. I just wanted it to have those pit sensors. Um, I've never seen that image before. You know, like this whole thing to me is like, how, how do you... If you're gonna give them a giant monster movie, you gotta give them a giant monster movie. Like, I'm sick of like withholding and like not showing people or just waiting to the very end. Like, this is about monsters fighting. This is like childhood awe. It's like, oh my god! Uh, And this movie is like more of a kaiju movie than than a traditional Kong film, where it takes elements from the Kong films. Um, But I didn't want this creature to have eyes. I just wanted to have the black pit sensors and to realize that it was blind. Um, and then you know we we were forced to add eyes to it, so we were shooting it in the eye <laughs> and blowing out its 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 right eye is like kind of my uh, <laughs> my way to get rid of the eyes. I just think it's a way more elegant creature when it had no eyes. Um, but even moments like this, like using this propeller as like almost like a a blade or a pair of brass knuckles, um, as she falls into the water. I've never seen that before, you know what I mean? Like right there, like you know, foregrounded weapon to the creature, and then clank, boom, and slice. In this like slow mo brawler moment, like you know, as you see, it's busted out eye socket. Like I love that, uh, and I've never seen it before. Right here though, this is actually one of the first pieces of concept art that I had too, where I just I didn't quite know what it was yet, but this idea of this hand reaching down, of this this figure falling in the water. Like, like, I really can't stress enough how much the concept art led the production, and we sort of had to reverse engineer these moments. And so this is this is one of the things that I'm most proud of in the film, just because literally up until the very end, people were like, "I don't know if we can do this. It just, it's too, it's too crazy, Jordan. You're you're out of your mind. What do you mean? What do you mean its tongue shoots out and wraps around its arm and pulls its arm into the creature while weaver is in its mouth? What are you talking about? And then it pulls its guts out. What? And hearing people react to that in the theater is one of my favorite things it 's so insane, and i I love it um and then it's you know it 's things like this where it 's like okay how how do we begin to approach the connection between Kong and a human but not play the beauty and the beast story you know like that thing on the ridge that I was talking about with the eyes like it you know it it, it evokes and like weaver 's relationship with it it evokes um elements of the connection between Kong and a human, but it's not about this, like, infatuation or this, like, sexual uh, love between a gorilla and a woman in a white dress, you know, it's more about, like, a larger, sort of, like, mythic like human experience thing you know, of, like, a, a man and, and, and a beast or a man and a god somehow connecting. Um, I always joke, like, in this moment here and as he walks away, I always feel like Kong just, like, survived a shane black movie or die hard or something like he's so beat up and tattered and i love how his body language has changed and i love how his demeanor has changed and and you know now he truly sort of is this like even more this lonely king and i love the idea though, that he's walking away and somehow he intrinsically knows like we're just not meant to be together like gods and humans like the there the was that we are meant to be separated um and I, you know, the work that Toby did on his face and with the, with the facial capture and the work that Industrial Light Magic did in those moments, I just, it's it's really awe-inspiring. This was the second-to-last day on set. It was like a really intense, weird thing where we were really out in Hollong Bay on this boat, and it was the rest of the cast. Everyone was going to go home, and then I had that final day with Toby Kebbell. And, uh... I love movies that have people singing. Or playing instruments, you know, in Kings of Summer, they, they, they the boys, uh, one of them plays the violin. And, uh, you know, in Full Metal Jacket, there's that scene where they're walking through and singing the Mickey Mouse song. And John had been pitching to me this idea of songs that he could sing in the movie. And I really wanted a scene where the soldiers were singing a song. And, like, this wasn't in the script. We were just in the middle of Ha Long Bay, which is, like, <laughs> one of the wonders of the world. One of the most beautiful places on the planet. Super foggy that day, so we're all worried that we're like wasting the the beauty of this location. Although it honestly ended up working out pretty well, and then it's just turning to John and saying, Hey, like, what about that song you were saying? Like, you want to try singing that right now? And he just goes for it and nails it, you know. And, and once again, that's like a real thing where you know, I think the studio saw that the first time, and everyone was like, This is kind of amazing and kind of could be horrible. Um, and you know luckily they're just it's a, it's a place that was willing to take risks and said yeah we get on the movie on this this crazy song uh where it's like it starts with a character singing and then takes over and you know in a weird way going into his eye here like to me it sort of solidifies the film as like Marlo's movie it's this weird story about a, a soldier who crashes on this island and then disappears for 40 minutes of the film and then gets reintroduced and it's about bringing him home and then it happens to have all these insane beasts and creatures in it and you have your vietnam war movie mixed with harry house and an apocalypse now mixed with kong and all these other things but in a weird way it ends up uh it's sort of Marlowe's story (laughs) um this scene was shot very late in the game we um uh we were just about to like wrap the edit and It just somehow made sense to me that we needed to see Marlowe be reunited, like it became so clear how much audiences were identifying with him. And I just, you know, I I pitched them this idea, and I got to go shoot this with uh, uh, Mike Berlucci, who is another DP that I like to work with, you know, Larry Fong shot the, the Uh, the whole movie and as you can see he crushed it Um, and he wasn't available or something and I wanted to shoot this like very running gun so like we were at a house Uh, we shot this scene I think the day after the election or something so I was in a very strange headspace um and I mean John and everyone here is so good and that's Will Britton who uh you know played young John C. Riley in the film so being able to bring him back as his son was great. You know, and just the idea that he sits home and has his hot dog and has his beer. Um, It just became so clear how much audiences were, like, falling in love with that character. So it was like, well, we we have to. You know, like, we, we have to close that, that chapter. Um, I think it's really amazing that most movies just put credits over black. Like, doing something like this is such a simple, small thing. Like, you just sat through. You just spent hundreds of millions of dollars on a film like, and you're just going to put your credits over black <laughs> I mean I guess that's fine but and, and in some ways that's elegant for whatever your movie just was like not everything needs something but on a big movie like this just like do something <laughs> do something spend another $1,500 <laughs> whatever it is um, look all these people in the crew I, I can't you know thank them enough like making a movie like this is not easy you know, and guys right there like Bill Corso, like and Dennis and Doug and Mia, you know, like they're all just legends, uh, and it's like an honor to be able to work with them. Um, you know, the movie was largely edited by Rick Pearson and Bob Morawski, and um, I was able to bring on one of the editors that I've worked with for a long time, Josh Schaefer, who did a lot of Kings of Summer and uh, did a lot of TV stuff that I've done, and so it was great being able to bring him on. Also, just passing there was John Dykstra, who, um, who is. The man, you know, like he he was responsible for a lot of that original Star Wars stuff. And um, he's just a legend, he, you know, Spider-Man and all of that. So being able to really sort of get his opinion and feedback on all of this was was amazing. Um, but look, all of a sudden done, this is two and a half years of my life. You know, like it's such a huge undertaking. And we just worked so hard, as I've said many times, to sort of like always hopefully feel like you're seeing something new. And, like, if you feel like you've seen it, then we've failed. And if you feel like you've seen the creatures before, then we failed. And, um, you know, it's a movie that I think, like, very much wears its weird references on its sleeve, whether that is Mononoke or whether it's these, like, small little nods to uh, (laughs) Taxi Driver or Shadow of the Colossus or whatever. Like, it's, it's so, um... I just like to think the movie is like very honest and wanting to be fun and its inspiration. And um, and there's so many like dorky, weird <laughs> references just from things from my childhood um, and things that I love in here. Um, and I hope people pick up on that. And one day I'll probably release like a, a list of, I think, all of the actual references in this film uh, and see if people can find all of them. Because there, there's so many that I didn't even get to talk about. Um, there's so many weird ones. Uh, you know, as you can see here, we were in Hawaii, Australia and Vietnam. And it was really incredible being able to travel around there and meet different crews and see how great they all were. But you know, really Vietnam in particular, I I just can't stress enough how incredible of an experience that was and, and how much I think me and the entire crew kind of fell in love with that country, the people and the culture and just everything about it, it's such a special, unique place that just doesn't, um, it's just so different than Los Angeles. (laughs) Um, I I can't say enough things about it and I really do hope that people sort of rediscover Vietnam um, through this film. I think most people's perception of what that film is, 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 or what that country is, is through the war and photographs of the war and a lot of that was in the south and and that's just not what the country is you know like it's not who who those people are Uh, it's such a beautiful sort of textured amazing place um and their crew is really incredible i really think that country is like ready for their version of the raid or something like that like the the film industry is growing there um at a really really amazing rate so go shoot movies in vietnam go visit vietnam (laughs) this this whole movie is basically just my Huge, expensive infomercial for why people should go visit Vietnam. Uh, you notice a lot of votes in the credits. Uh, all those people are unrelated to me. Someone was like, "Oh, I saw there was a grip in the credit. There's cool uh, named uh, Vote. It's so cool you hired your family." I was like, "I, <laughs> I am <I'm> sorry. <laughs> That's not my family, and they're amazing." Uh... <laughs> <laughs> we, I mean, we just had so many people who were so great, but, like, our, our sort of costume department and wardrobe, like, you know, Mary Vogt, uh, who's a legend as well, uh, unrelated to me. A lot of people were like, oh, it's so cool you hired your mom. Mm, not my mom, just an amazing talent. Um, really, like, just, I, I can't thank this, like, crew and, and team enough. And then you get into these lists where you're like, there's so many digital artists so many people at ilm there's so many people in 3d and like each of those people contribute so much it's really incredible and being able to sort of go to ilm and and work with them and 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 show them footage and and sort of like talk to people You, you sit in a room and these shots are so many things but then you say hey who did the water effect sim on this shot and like one guy raises his hand you know and like and it's so easy to view this as such a uh a massive machine, but like it's it's so many individual people behind it. And you get into Skywalker Sound, like Al Na- Nelson and, and and Pete and and these guys who you know were so great to sort of like let me bring in something as small as Kings of Summer and and do the final mix there, and to be able to bring on like the guy that I did the the, the sound design with uh, William McGugan on that, and to be able to get him on this. Um, was amazing. Like you gotta sort of travel with your family and the people that you trust and um, the being up at Skywalker and like there's so many weird even just nods in terms of sound design. Like when Packard's on the radio, uh, all the radio static in this film was like very much it was a fusion of like the probe droid in Empire Strikes Back, like mixed with like the, the radio static from um, Coppola's The Conversation like the weird sort of analog stuff. And, uh, you know, when they're starting the boat, it's like got the shades of a Millennium Falcon. And um, there's just so many weird things like that. And I'm really proud of the sound design too, especially like when Kong's being revealed, like the way they the chopper, like thump, 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 thump. thump. It becomes this very stylized thing. And then right after that, as I mentioned before, like the the, the rhythmic nature of the gunfire. I just love movies that have... Weird sound design where you actually sort of notice it in a good way. And then Dave Cole, who just went by, who's the colorist, like really, really crushed it. Um, you know, I wanted to do something really insane with the color on this film and I'm really proud of what it is. Um but it was not easy, you know, and, and you know, there are movies uh, that shall remain nameless that, you know, will win Oscars the color for like thousands of hours. Um and we did not have that. We didn't have that time. Um, but I'm really proud of how this film looks and I'm proud of the fact that it doesn't look like a traditional sort of blockbuster and plays with color and, and, you know, Dave Cole is a huge, huge part of that. He really went with this crazy idea and helped me sort of like bring that alive. Um, yeah. Cool logos, right? Real cool logos. It's funny because we have this, like, uh, this post credits thing coming up, but then for anyone astute, like right here... You know, you get um, copyrights about like Toho and Godzilla and those monsters. So you're like kind of spoiling it. You're just gonna sit there in the dark. I know. I always kind of loved that that line right there, and, and the idea that like Tom is, is this fun for you? actually commenting and talking to the audience, and like you you, you know you know people are waiting around, and like you're really having fun. You just sat through those seven minutes of credits. It's funny. This scene was actually taken off the movie for a long time because um, there was concerns that didn't fully like this space didn't fully mesh with like what Monarch was, and it's one of those classic things where like it was off the film, and and like for a long time i had been saying, guys, people are gonna love this. People are gonna love this scene. I promise you. I promise you. People are gonna love this scene. And. Um, Then like one random person comes in who hasn't seen the movie and is like a new voice and and watches and like, Oh my god, that's so fun, I love it. Why isn't that on the movie? And then everyone says, Yeah, we should put this on the movie And you're like, Uh, yeah, that's a great idea. We should definitely put this on the movie. You guys are totally right. Um, but audiences like freak out over this. I don't I (laughs) honestly I almost can't even explain why. Like obviously all this stuff is cool and it gives you this promise of this greater world. Um but We'll see. I kinda keep joking around that the people are like, Oh, are you gonna do a sequel? And it's like I'm like a prequel with John C. Riley fighting monsters with a katana and his relationship with the villagers. And the uh, and the Japanese soldier. That Godzilla Roar by the way is uh that was Brian Janowski, my assistant's idea. He gets full credit, someone should pay him a lot of money. And that's it.